So one thing led to another um, in this study that we're going to do for the next nine weeks. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the story of Christianity and the how I came about uh, thinking of doing this is I've always wanted to um, teach a course on church history and never really had the opportunity to do it. And then when we did that study on the development of uh, St. Nicholas into uh, the icon of Santa Claus, I thought, you know what, that was such an interesting study that maybe uh, it would uh, be helpful for us to kind of know not just the first century story. I think we're all familiar with the first century story of the church. Uh, but beyond that, a lot of times we don't know the turning points of uh, different people, uh, predicaments, uh, as I say here on this title slide, characters, controversies, and some of the conflicts that occurred in the church that really shaped the way uh, Christianity developed over the centuries. And uh, so I want you to bear with me over a few weeks here. I hope that it will be interesting to you. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at uh, nine different uh, uh, periods of time. So um, I'll put this up on the screen each week and kind of highlight uh, what we're going to talk about that night. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that first century era, although not all of the first century, but those foundational years uh, from 6 BC to 70 AD uh, that kind of began the movement of Christianity uh, that would later, by the middle of the fourth century, really uh, took over as the dominant religion in the Roman Empire and uh, kind of took a interesting turn uh, in the Middle Ages that really necessitated a reformation and so forth. So we're going to look at these periods of time, Jesus and the Apostles, the age of Catholic Christianity, uh, the age of the Christian Roman Empire, um, the Middle Ages, the age of the Reformation, reason and revival, progress ideologies, and then uh, most recently, uh, technology and how it has shaped the church. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to tie together um, some of the things that occurred as they relate to many of the different debates about different parts of Scripture. So we'll be using the Bible as well to kind of see how different controversies and different theological discussions about different parts of the Scripture really did cause uh, the church to go in a couple of different directions. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, church history at all, uh, a lot of times we look at Christianity and just kind of assume that uh, there's only one form of Christianity. It's probably better to think about Christianities, plural, even to this day. There's all kinds of various elements of Christianity, and they took different turns along the way. So, um, Bear with me. I hope to make this interesting uh, for you and hopefully bring some of the uh, pieces together that will help you understand the church as we see it even in our own day. 
So what we're going to do is take a look at the age of Jesus and the apostles tonight. So part one, we're going to try to summarize each age um, that we're going to look at with a, a graphic. And the one I want to use for tonight is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's image of the Last Supper. The story of Jesus and um, the apostles is really the story of a reformation of sort of Judaism. So what we want to do tonight is begin with Christianity's roots. Many times, uh, if you've been uh, in church a while, you begin to see the connection between the Old and New Testament. Uh, sometimes people that are newer to the faith don't understand that in Christianity, long before the birth of Christ, really, you have the roots of Christianity. And when Jesus begins his public ministry, it is kind of a renewal movement uh, to what he grew up on. Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew, but he brought a new authority to the text. You'll remember on occasions, he took a new twist on how to understand Old Testament passages of Scripture. Probably the most famous is when he would say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he takes this authority and he begins to kind of reshape uh, Judaism in a way that it is uh, applicable, not just to Jews alone, but to Gentiles that will eventually make their way into the church. Only after his crucifixion and his resurrection do we see that his teachings begin to spread beyond that small little geographical area uh, that uh, we are familiar with, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, that area there. So when we look at the development of Christianity, what's fascinating, especially for those of us who live in the West, is how much it shaped a lot of our viewpoints um, and even was kind of foundational in the establishment of the history of our own country and uh, many of the things that shaped Western civilization, whether it's politics, whether it's um, economic or intellectual institutions. All of these things have some connections. And I'll try to point you in the direction of understanding that without uh, Christianity becoming such a dominant force, uh, Western civilization might look very different than it does now if another world religion had been at the forefront of the shaping of our own country. So what we're going to do uh, tonight is take a look at a couple different things. First of all, some Jewish distinctions that um, uh, allow us to un better understand what Christianity brought to the table. So when we think about the roots of Christianity, we are thinking about um, the Roman Empire, and we're thinking about religion being a form of, uh, of worship, uh, not just of a god, but of gods, plural. And we call these religions pagan, but pagan is this idea of um, a religion that 
sees this uh, development of different gods that have different responsibilities. So when we think about any pantheon of gods, you have some gods that are um, more important than other ones. So uh, you have higher gods, you have lower gods, you have gods that uh, are specifically overseeing certain things, whether it's fertility or agriculture or storms or whatever it may be. And um, into this context, what we find taking place is um, this one form of worship, which when you read church history, they will use the word uh, cult, C-U-L-T, and it's a and basically the meaning of that word in church history is the forms of worship. It it doesn't have to do with some deviation of Christianity with some charismatic leader. Um, the cult was the form of worship, and there was a lot of commonality between Judaism and pagan religions as well. Prayers, sacrifices, those type of things. What's interesting, though, is there wasn't the jealousy, maybe that's not the right word, but there wasn't this idea that our religion is right and yours is wrong within pagan religions. Uh, different people had different gods that were more important to them, but there was not this idea of persecution of other people that worshipped other gods. They had some gods in common. Uh, they had some gods that might be more unique to their community community or sect, that type of thing. Now, the reason there was not this battle uh, between various religions as such is because in the first century, in which Jesus begins to kind of remake Judaism, religion is really not so much a matter of securing an afterlife. The worship of the gods was primarily to uh, somehow appeal to the gods to assist mortals who are in need. And so various religions called upon various gods, whether it's for rain, whether it's for crops, whether it's for fertility. Um, it's quite interesting that because so many people died at such a young age, in a lot of the pagan religions, you needed a pretty substantial uh, birth rate just to keep the um, population level. And um, and so uh, I think uh, some scholars suggested that every family needed five children just to keep um, the population level with the death, what they're losing to death. So a lot of factors are going on. What's happening in Judaism is quite interesting. You have a smaller group that makes up just a, a, a small part of the Roman Empire. It's estimated that about 7% of the entire Roman Empire, not just in the Holy Land, made up uh, uh, were made up of Jews. So uh, this 7% accounted for mm, about 4 million people all across the globe, wherever the Roman Empire was in power. This uh, Judaism stressed a lot of the same things, as I mentioned before, to secure divine favor. What's fascinating, and I think we've mentioned this before in our study times, 
is that the idea of monotheism is a real a much later development in Judaism. Even the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, you shall have no other gods, plural, before me. The idea is there's many gods, but they selected this one god that was their deliverer, Yahweh, who was to be the premier god, and there should be solo fidelity of worship to this one god. But there was the understanding, and Pete Enns calls this monolatry, that one God took priority over other gods, but Jews, just like other cultures in the ancient world, believed in a multitude of different gods. What we find is that evolution takes place in religious philosophy, and we see that slowly over time, the Jews became more monotheistic, believing in one true God. And that's what then began to set them apart. You see here on this slide, Jews insisted on worshiping only one God. And this is a God that chose them to be his people. And they believed that this God was so gracious that he gave them his will in the form of the Torah, the law. Many times I think we think about... Uh, Judaism being burdened by the law, all those food laws, uh, you know, different things like that. But actually, um, it was seen as something as a gift. And that's why Psalm 119 talks about, oh, how I love thy law. That whole psalm talks about uh, the, the excellence of the law, because it sets them apart as a unique people, and it shows how God is watching over them. So ethics um, is interesting as well. We often think of Judaism as an ethical religion, which it is, uh, thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal, that type of thing. However, that is a development as well. In pagan religion, uh, religion ethics come later. Again, as I said before, religion was primarily to get the attention of the gods so that the gods would watch over the needs of mortal human beings. So do you have some thoughts, questions on these first couple of slides? Yeah, you can um, kind of see this in when Paul, I can't remember which ch church he was talking to, but he presented God as the unknown God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Acts chapter 17, he's in Athens on Mars Hill. Uh, yeah, I knew it was on Mars Hill, but I wasn't yeah. sure who he was talking to. Yeah, he was in Athens, Greece uh, at the time. And uh, there was a multitude uh, of different altars to all kinds of gods. And they even had an altar to the unknown god, in case we, right. missed, in case we missed one type of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that's an interesting conversation. It's a lengthy passage, actually. Acts 17 is a lengthy chapter that where you find that story. So good. Okay, so now we turn to Jesus. So he uh, is brought up in Judaism. He is an individual that uh, would have known the, uh, the Old Testament uh, text. He displays that as he begins his earthly ministry 
when he is in the synagogue and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he makes connections between the old and the new. But when we think about the roots of Christianity, the question becomes, uh, at how did Jesus form uh, the Christian church? So for the first, uh, you know, years of his life, we don't know a whole lot. Um, we are given birth narratives. Uh, we're told that at the age of 12, he went to the temple um, and was interacting with some of the philosophical leaders at the time. Uh, but what shapes Judaism or reforms Judaism is his teaching ministry uh, between AD 27 and AD 30. Now, scholars debate that. You might have uh, think of uh, his earthly ministry between 30 and 33 AD, that he died in 33 AD. Most scholars believe that Jesus was born in 4 BC, um, and that's a whole nother story of calendars and dating and that type of thing. So it doesn't matter, whichever one you choose. There's a three-year period of uh, time, and he gathers these followers, and I think what is substantial is the only time Jesus really mentions the church is in Matthew chapter 16. I want to read that to you. It's an interaction that uh, Jesus has with Peter. So here we find a word in Greek called ekklesia, uh, and this is where he uses this idea of building a church. So it's... Uh, it's prefaced by a question that he asked the disciples. And it says, when Jesus, uh, I'm in Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, the, the idea of the church here, ecclesia in Greek, uh, basically is built on a Hebrew word, um, kahal, which means an assembly. Upon you, I will build this assembly. Um, I don't think he had in mind a church as an institution quite yet, but I do think he is predicting that something's going to happen, and the, after he's gone, they're going to carry on his work. And that's exactly what John 14 through 16 talks about, where you have the uh, farewell discourse that Jesus gives his disciples and says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give to you another helper. And that's that those chapters that talk about the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 16 of Matthew, when he is predicting his coming death a few verses later, he then uh, takes Peter aside, or actually Peter takes Jesus aside, and begins to rebuke uh, Jesus 
when Jesus says, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to die, and then on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life. And Peter takes him aside and says, no, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, which is a common title. You had all kinds of various rabbis in Judaism, and they had their own followers. But if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, uh, must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. So there's this price to be paid, and Jesus is calling for an allegiance to his teaching and um, that meant they had to make a choice of who they were going to listen to and so forth. So here we are given the initial idea of the church. Uh, again, it primarily means an assembly at this point. But the Gospels, you must uh, keep in mind, are, are later additions to the New Testament. Uh, all four Gospels are written later than most of the epistles by the Apostle Paul. But um, what here we have this introduction. Uh, it really will take a couple of centuries before the church begins to kind of take on the character that we begin to see uh, and associate with a finished canon called the Bible, a, a structure that has leadership like elders and deacons and those type of things. All, early on, it's kind of an evolution that begins uh, to move in this direction, but it's not a finished product uh, by any means in the first century. So any thoughts there? So one thing to keep in mind when you're talking about the roots of Christianity is this idea that in Palestine, um, you are at the crossroads of a lot of different things that are going on. Uh, it, it is under the Roman Empire that rules the area with an iron fist. Um, and you have this small percentage of people uh, that are living in this territory, and uh, they are beginning to grow a distaste for life under the Roman Empire. And so you have different uh, uh, factions that develop, and they're represented in the New Testament. And these factions um, uh, um, have their own followers, okay, their own allegiances. So you see them at the bottom of the um, slide there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes are the four dominant groups that kind of develop um, while Christianity is start, just starting to get its, um, its, uh, its beginnings. The Pharisees uh, really emphasized the uh, Jewish laws and traditions. Um, they felt virtue was going to be the way out from under the Roman Empire because God was going to come and deliver them because they were holy. The Sadducees are a group of people that are kind of a priestly elite that actually like the Roman Empire because they are on top and they collude with the Roman Empire. 
Uh, it's interesting that the Pharisees and the Sadducees will come together on one thing, getting rid of Jesus, uh, that you see later in the Gospels. Uh, the Zealots uh, kind of want to return to the day of the Maccabees, the, that period of time between the Testaments where they felt violence was necessary to throw off Roman rule. And that the Essenes are a group of people that felt that they were going to withdraw from society, basically. And uh, so they go out into the Judean wilderness. It's there they take up the cause of uh, copying what uh, scrolls they had of the Old Testament. And uh, later that will be found as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, what we find is the Essene community is a group of people that um, really felt that the whole system was rotten that the Pharisees were off base, the Sadducees were off base, the Zealots were off base. So they kind of withdrew and formed their own little community. And it's interesting, most scholars believe that um, John the Baptist was an Essene, that he withdrew and that was his community. And that's why he had such a strange diet and uh, such strange clothing that he wore. Um, what we know, obviously, is that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, so there's a connection there. Jesus is trying to reform Judaism. Uh, John kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, I don't know if that's even possible. He joins this community, and yet what he does is interesting. He becomes the forerunner of Jesus, and as the forerunner of Jesus, what he's doing is he's trying to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the way he was going to do it was insist that the people repent. And the best way that they could show their repentance and prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah would be baptism. What's interesting is one day when Jesus was about to begin his earthly ministry, he chose to enter into the Jordan River, be baptized by John as the inaugural sign of his ministry. And you'll remember there was an audible voice. This is my beloved son. There's a dove that descends down. And um, that begins Jesus' earthly ministry. And from that point on, Jesus begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. That's his central message. And if you were to look in Mark chapter one, you'll find that Mark doesn't mess around with any birth narratives. He just launches into the uh, adult ministry of Jesus. And in the very first few verses of Mark chapter one, Mark summarizes as the first gospel, Mark is the uh, uh, oldest gospel uh, that we have. He says that Jesus was calling out to people saying, uh, get ready, get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Then you know the story in the Gospels, Jesus growing popularity, the miracles that he does all, all become kind of signs uh, that this kingdom has made its way into, uh, into the world. So that will cause a lot of jealousy and fear in the hearts of these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, you know, they are especially 
uh, fearful. The zealots are disappointed. The zealots wanted a military-type leader, and uh, that will turn on Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Um, he's not riding a war horse. He's riding a donkey, and he's bringing a different type of kingdom. Um, the Essenes, interestingly enough, um, they are very apocalyptic, and I'm going to explain that in this slide here. Um, John the Baptist, as he's uh, he's a miracle child himself, uh, born to parents who were too old to have kids, and his public ministry has this strange look to it because of what he is wearing and what he is eating, but he emerges from the desert, because that's where he's at with the Essenes. He emerges from the desert, and he calls people to repentance. Now, what's interesting is even he uh, gets a little bit disillusioned with Jesus, and on one occasion, he, um, he sends some of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we were expecting? And Jesus responds by saying, yeah, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, all of these are signs that I'm the Messiah. Um, he is cast into prison uh, because he is critical of uh, the ruler, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Uh, he spoke out because Herod Antipas had, um, had this side affair that was going on and um he just wanted to shut him up and while he's in prison uh there is a a daughter of herodias uh who is his wife who danced before a group and she became a spectacle and herod was so pleased with her uh presentation that he says um tell me what you want and I'll grant it. And she requested the head of John the Baptist on a platter and uh, John the Baptist is martyred and that will end his ministry. But in this profile, what's important to understand is what I, what I just mentioned, John and the Essenes had kind of a apocalyptic outlook um, that was beginning to spread in the first century. And what I mean by that is they felt that the rulers were so evil that God would have to come in and overthrow them with some uh, dramatic act of judgment. And this is kind of reflected in John, but at times you'll see that, excuse me, that apocalyptic theme come out in some of the teachings of Jesus as well, especially in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. But um, so these are all tensions that are kind of uh, at the very beginning stages of Christianity and the development of the church. Let me stop there for a moment and see if you have some thoughts. Okay. If if yeah, go ahead. John the Baptist was an Essene, yeah, and, and they retreated to the desert. Why would he go agitate Herod? It seems out of character. Well, because of this apocalyptic element, this is the idea that 
things have gotten so evil that um, he is acting as a prophet. Remember in the Old Testament, the prophets are not primarily making predictions. They are primarily calling out kings for uh, for the way they're ruling. And so um, the prophets of the Old Testament often put the kings on notice, okay, for their injustice, um, mm. all, all kinds of different things. I think John the Baptist acting as a, a prophetic voice. Remember, we have to piece together, too, that we're told that between the Testaments, it, it's, it's called the 400 silent years, that it, the ministry of the prophets was pretty much shut down during that era. And John the Baptist is kind of reopening that office, if you will, as a prophet that is going to put the king on notice. And um, I think that's what he's doing. Uh, yeah, you would think, like, if we only think in terms of monasticism, you know, people that would draw into a community and they don't want to interact with society and they they might have uh, some type of robe on and they have, uh, you know, their own little monasteries and stuff like that. Think of this more not as a monastery, but as a community, a community that is awaiting God's judgment to put things to rights. And with that in mind, I think John is that vocal point uh, that is calling out the evil that he is seeing around him. Does that help, Brenda? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. So any other comments? Yeah, because the Essenes had the, a whole community built on top of, I think it was the Masada, and they had water brought in, their own water system, and walls around it, so if they were attacked, they could, you know, protect themselves. I'm glad you brought that up, Beth, because in a moment you'll see um, where this um, this whole apocalyptic um, emphasis comes to an end. And it, it is at Masada where that, yeah. that whole yeah. thing kind of comes to an end. I'll get to that in a second. Yeah, because I saw that community. So um, you know that there's this tension between Jesus and the reformation he's trying to bring about to Judaism. Um, different gospels emphasize different things. And what we find is that um, one of the things that Jesus often talked about was the observance of some of the religious laws, in particular, um, some of the dietary laws and uh, the observation of, uh, of uh, the Sabbath and how how to observe the Sabbath. Um, so the Pharisees really went overboard on taking a lot of laws and putting additional amounts of laws upon top of them. Uh, Jesus, it seems as though, wants to bring a new focus, and that's why he uses uh, the imagery of God having the hairs of our head counted. Um, uh, calling God Abba, Father, different things like that. It's kind of a, 
a new way of emphasizing how we understand God. So Jesus has a three-year ministry. Um, it comes to a head uh, with a, about a year before his death. That's when we find him at his most popular point in public ministry. And it kind of goes downhill from there because of some of the things that he does, whether it's the cleansing of the temple or even he is criticizing the Pharisees. Um, as you see in Matthew chapter 23, he has a series of woes against the Pharisees. So the clock is ticking on him. And what we find taking place, it, it all boils down to the last week. And the Gospel of John that we're going to study over the next couple months on Sunday morning uh, really, really highlights a lot of the conflict between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, it all boils down to the last week when he's in Jerusalem to observe the Passover as a good Jewish uh, observant. And what we find is that uh, he sparks the imagination of people when he rides into Jerusalem and they think of Zechariah 9.9, uh, where they see the one who's going to be the ruler riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And they, they, the people begin to think this is the fulfillment of that prophecy and he is going to uh, show himself to be the Messiah. What happens, though, is after Palm Sunday, he enters into the temple, he, he turns over the tables, he calls um, uh, what he considers to be the house of prayer, he, <coughs> excuse me, calls it a den, <coughs> excuse me, of thieves. And that really kind of begins to seal his fate. And it won't take much longer before you find he is going to be crucified. Um, and what we find is he's set up. And the way Jesus is set up in that last week is by the priestly class, the Sanhedrin, who take a uh, way of bringing accusation against him, saying that he's guilty of blasphemy, and bringing him before Pilate. And it's there that he'll be condemned uh, and Pilate has his own issues that are going on. He had made some political mistakes in his rule, and he was in hot water with uh, Caesar uh, back in Rome. So um, even though he kind of washes his hands, yet he has Jesus put to death because of his own political uh, situation. So when we then come to the last part of the Gospels, obviously, you have the accounts of the resurrection. Um, Paul mentions some of the people that saw Jesus raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the resurrection is God's uh, stamp of approval upon the ministry of Jesus and what he came to do. And uh, what we find then is uh, the church begins to take that uh, witness that has now been oral tradition for a long period of time. Remember, the Gospels are older documents. Uh, uh, they, uh, let me rewind that. They, they come later, that's a better way of saying it, than many of the epistles. 
So all of this has been oral tradition for a number of years before it's finally written down in various forms in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's more than likely 1 Corinthians 15, when you read those first couple of verses, which names these people that saw Jesus alive, that was written probably uh, much earlier than the Gospels. So this becomes kind of the primary witness uh, to the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul uh, speaks about not only Jesus' resurrection, but ours as well. Uh, he's the first fruits. So now we're talking about this period of time. What happens next? Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. You're probably familiar with this. Go into all the world, um, teaching them to be my disciples. And um, he gives this commission to his disciples. And before he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he tells uh, the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what we find is after the day of Pentecost, another Jewish observation, another feast, Judaism is still at the heart of this whole thing. Um, we find that the uh, disciples receive the Holy Spirit. And this begins the movement to spread these uh, the teachings of Jesus uh, to other people beyond uh, those in the synagogue, where uh, the first disciples probably after the resurrection worshipped. They didn't leave the synagogues initially. Um, they continued to worship in the synagogues. And this will bring about great tension uh, between those who are Christians and those who are still observing Judaism, meeting in the same place of worship. And um, this Jew and Gentile um, division and conflict is very prominent in the New Testament. The first believers were Jewish. Uh, all the disciples were Jewish. Uh, Luke, maybe not, but um, they're all Jewish and they're continuing to observe Judaism. But when Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is given, the commandment of Jesus in Acts 1.8 is, I want you to go into all the world and be my witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. And um, it will take another individual to really make that happen. And that's the Apostle Paul. Just a side note on Pentecost. Um, the word Pentecost is the idea of 50th. So 50 days after uh, the resurrection, you have the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is called the Jewish Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, um, that was observed uh, for uh, years and years. But here what we find taking place, it's applied to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it's there, this first community of Jewish believers becomes kind of the foundation stone of the church that will then begin to expand into other parts of the world. Now, Paul will play an important role in that, obviously, but um, you have to understand before you get to Paul's missionary endeavors is that there was a lot of Hellenization that was going on um, as well under the Roman Empire. After uh, Alexander the Great uh, conquered 
much of the known world. He loved Greek culture. He loved uh, Greek philosophy. And that would be the standard by which uh, this culture would be formed. So it's not, it's not unusual that for uh, the world to be Hellenized, that is, be subdued to Greek culture, that the New Testament is not written in, written in Aramaic. That's what Jesus would have spoken. Not Hebrew, but Aramaic. But the New Testament is written in Greek. And that's because of uh, the Hellenization that took place under uh, the uh, Greece empire. But what now happens is you have Jews that are scattered all over the Roman Empire that has been shaped by Greek uh, culture. And um, now you have Gentiles interacting and mixing with Jewish people as well. It doesn't take long, and you can read this in the book of Acts, um, that there's these tensions between these Palestinian and Hellenized Jews and these people begin to uh, say there's some injustice going on. Our people are being overlooked and you're taking, giving privileges to others. And that's that's where this whole idea of choosing some deacons to sort all that out comes from in uh, Acts chapter six. But it doesn't take long. You flip the page into Acts chapter seven and you find that some of these groups now begin to persecute this newly formed group. And you have a long story. Acts chapter 7 is a very long account of uh, Stephen, who is stoned to death by these Jews that see the reformation of Judaism as a threat. And um, so uh, they kill Stephen and there is a man there that is watching and participating. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus uh, gives hearty approval for the death of Stephen. You flip over a couple more chapters in Acts chapter 9. He has this dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus where he's not going to preach. He's going to persecute. He's going to get Christians and uh, put them on trial and put them to death. But by this visionary experience, he's convinced of Jesus' resurrection. And as he, um, he realizes that Jesus is alive, Jesus tells him uh, to go into uh, the city and that there would be another individual that would uh, 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 give him, uh, kind of testify on his behalf that he's a changed man. So... Occasionally, through this study we're going to have, we've already looked at a profile of John the Baptist. Here's a short little profile of Paul as well. And uh, this profile is speaking of a man who was a Jewish Pharisee, came out of an elite family, uh, was probably given a very high education. It's believed that he was a student of Gamaliel. Um and he was going to persecute the church until he had this visionary experience. When he was converted to Christ, uh, he began this intense missionary campaign to win over other Gentile people and to begin to follow um, him. Now, what's interesting is 
how Paul marks the beginning of Christianity as a non-Jewish world religion, okay? So up to this point, it's Jewish. But the other thing that I think is fascinating is the Gospels talk about Christianity, emphasizing the teachings of Jesus, but in Paul's writings, it's the teaching about Jesus. Did you catch the difference there? In the Gospels, you have the emphasis on the teachings of Jesus, but under Paul's writings, it's the teachings about Jesus. And there you have a lot more of a theological uh, slant that's starting to emerge in the church, because now there are certain things that are believed to be orthodox uh, and to be true about Jesus and other things that are not. And that's going to play into the first three centuries of the church, where there's going to be a lot of debate about different theological issues in the church. And there's these church councils that develop. The first one you have is actually in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15, where Paul, after his first missionary journey, sees uh, some Gentiles coming to faith, and these Jews are concerned, now are we going to throw the law out the window? And they have a conference in Jerusalem, and basically Paul gives a testimony about how these Gentiles are coming to faith, and yet uh, the Jews don't want to uh, give up the law. Um, they think that things are going to go haywire if that happens. So they come to a compromise in Acts chapter 15, and Paul sets out for a couple more different missionary journeys. So the thing that you find in the majority of the book of Acts are the travels of the Apostle Paul. Um, here's this persecutor that now has become persecuted because everywhere he goes, you have Jews that drive him out of town, push him from city to city. And uh, yet he is the individual that will bridge the world between Jews, Greeks, and Romans, which is, it's fascinating how he becomes this bridge builder that continues uh, the ongoing establishment of the church. Uh, after uh, a, a number of uh, issues and riots, there's a big one in Ephesus, in, we're told in the book of Acts, uh, he's arrested, he's imprisoned at least two times, uh, maybe more than that, and uh, finally, he will go to Rome, and that's where he's going to be put to death as a martyr. Now, on your handout that I sent you, it's in black and white, so it's not as easy to follow. But I'm going to I'm going to show you here these um, on this color map. You can kind of follow uh, the different missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So, in Acts chapter 14. Uh, 13 and 14, you have the first missionary journey where he takes off from Antioch, and he travels through an area, if you can keep following this color, uh, and he goes across Asia Minor, and then he returns, and there's a little, um, uh, there's this little de device that you can use to memorize the three missionary journeys of Paul. Uh, the letter C, the shape of a peanut, and the shape of a ladle, okay? So look here, 
uh, this, um, I guess I'd, I'd call that blue, not purple. This is the purple one. Uh, the blue, he like this, goes across Cyprus, up into Asia Minor, and then he comes back. Now, it's not the perfect letter C, but it represents that symbol. After the Jerusalem Council, uh, he will take off again. It's uh, noted by the pink line here, where he'll take off again from this home base in Antioch, and he'll go across Asia Minor. And here, up at Troas, he has a vision to cross over into Europe. And uh, this vision is, is telling him in Acts chapter 10 to come on over, um, uh, no, not Acts chapter 10, I'm mistaken there, Acts chapter 16. Um, he, he crosses over into Macedonia, which includes a KI, uh, and uh, you have here Greece as well. There you have Corinth and you have Athens, and he'll return back. And then the final one is a, a ladle type of, um, and that's where this purple line is. And if you follow it, if you kind of see this as a ladle that comes back down. So these three missionary journeys, he establishes um, what later will be called uh, house churches. And here you see the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And uh, all of these become critical points in the ongoing uh, development and establishment of Christianity. Finally, he makes one more trip, and uh, the end of the book of Acts, uh, he has to uh, survive a shipwreck uh, on his way to Rome, uh, where he will be imprisoned for two years under house arrest, and... Um, Eventually, he will be martyred, but he covers a lot of territory, and his primary goal in all of this is to reach Gentile people, and that's reflected in some of his letters. Remember when we were going through the book of Romans, I said that the primary thing was he wanted to get on to Spain. That's why he wanted to make a home base in Rome, so that could be headquarters for him to travel further into Spain and carry the gospel there. So let me stop there and see if you have any uh, questions or comments. And then I have just a couple more quick things, and then we'll be done for tonight. Anything? So the thing to keep in mind is while all of this um, missionary activity begins to take place, there's a lot of tension back in Jerusalem going on. Um, Jesus has been rejected as the Messiah by the Jewish people. Um, there is a new Jewish nationalism that begins to take place. And it's a nationalism that leads to a, a rebellion. And it's a bloody, bloody uh, conflict that goes on between 66 and 70 A.D., and it costs a lot of lives. Finally, the Roman Empire had enough. And in 70 AD, uh, the Emperor Vespasian sent Titus, his general, into Jerusalem to destroy the temple and carry off the spoils of war. Um, 
there's only one part of that that's left standing, and that's the Western Wall that's called the Wailing Wall. Um, but what Beth had mentioned just a moment ago is what's interesting here. The last stand was on the uh, far south side of Palestine on this rocky fortress where 4,000 Jewish men, women, and children, um, they retreat to a place called Masada as their last stand against the Roman Empire. What's fascinating is that uh, the Roman Empire waits them out, basically. They begin to starve. Um, and as they do so, rather than submit uh, to the Romans, uh, there's these 4,000 men, women, and children that commit suicide um, rather than surrender. So there's all these issues that are going on back in Jerusalem while uh, Christianity begins to make its movement into other parts of the world. Does that make sense? So, so I have uh, several things, nine quick things um, to kind of summarize this era. Number one, apocalypticism um, is a, a widespread thought. And so when you read things like Matthew 24 and 25, when you read things like the book of Revelation, it's, a, it's tying into a genre that is asking God to come. Isn't it interesting that most of the mentality in the first century, you'll see it in some of the writings of Paul, that he believes that Jesus is coming within his lifetime, that Jesus is going to return within that generation. So you have to keep that in mind. Long before we take these passages and try to make them end-time prophecies, it, it reflects kind of the attitude of that first century of, uh, of the establishment of the church. Number two, Jesus' teachings were largely about the coming of the kingdom of God and people to be in preparation for it. Number three, the message of this coming kingdom got Jesus into trouble with the ruling authorities. When he claims that he's the king of the Jews, when he has this kingdom, uh, that throws up red flags for those that are already in power. Number four, unlike some of the other apocalyptic prophets of the first century, Jesus had followers who would later proclaim that God vindicated him and that he is truly the Messiah by means of the resurrection. Number five, within 60 years of Jesus' death, Christianity will move beyond Jerusalem and Judea into the urban areas, really, throughout the uh, Roman Empire. Number six, the Gospels came to be written many years after the stories of Jesus had been in circulation throughout the empire. And it's no wonder that the, uh, the Gospels differ. They have different audience, they have different purpose, and they have different recollections on some of the things about Jesus. Number seven, the Apostle Paul developed the religion about Jesus through his missionary journeys. So again, just because I think this is important, the Gospels uh, are about the teachings of Jesus. The ministry of Paul is about Jesus himself. 
Okay, number eight, his controversies were primarily with Jewish opponents and typically concerned how to best interpret uh, the Torah, the law of God. And finally, number nine, uh, this is what marks the beginning of Christianity as a non-Jewish religion. And that will carry on uh, into the next uh, century. But um, hopefully, I tied a lot of things together there, but hopefully that gives you a feel for the the um the the roots of christianity the you know the very basics of how it got started you got some questions or insights or comments or anything like that no that's a nice summary i think good well there's a lot that's going on like in any like in any uh history of anything there's a lot more that's going on than a lot of times uh we're familiar with and and some of it interplays with other things and i i think that's what's important to keep in mind so anybody else okay so uh christianity will take some unique turns uh, along the way and a lot of it relates to the ongoing development of a canon of, a, of authoritative teaching that we call the scriptures and a lot of it has to do about different theories about who jesus is and um, how you reconcile different thoughts god man fully god fully man more God than man, more man than God. You know, there's all these kind of uh, debates that are going on. So, all right. Last call. Anything else? Okay. All right. Thanks, Thanks for your patience. And uh, Thank you. Thank uh, we'll you. see you next time. Okay. All right. All right. Have Bye. a good time. Thank you. Good night. Uh -huh. Bye. Bye. Bye.